So, Gustavo Ariano. So, I have a list of labels here that I've kind of compiled. It's not a very long list, but um, you tell me, as someone who's, you know, you've been on both sides of the microphone, tell me if any of these labels uh, describe you. And you can just respond with a yes or a check, and then uh, we'll discuss. Okay. So, Gustavo Ariano, journalist. Yes. Author. Yes. Professor. Yes. Multimedia show host. Uh, sure. <laughs> Part-time rabble rouser. No. Media gadfly. <laughs> um, malcontent more like it. <laughs> but uh, what about a uh, close relative of actress Jessica Alba, as cited on your Wikipedia page? Distant. <laughs> All right. Well, the the real Gustavo Ariano, please stand up. How are you doing, brother? Good, man. Thank you as always for having me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, as I mentioned uh, before, we went uh, started recording. Was that trying to tell your story is going to be impossible because it just continues to grow. There's another chapter being pretty much written every single day. As somebody who just follows your work and you know been a fan, we're friends, and so I'm very familiar with a lot of your stuff. But you know, we wanted to give kind of people a glance into the daily schedule, kind of a day in the life of Gustavo Ariano. But in order to do that, we have to kind of go, uh, I guess, condense some of your history together. And myself as a journalist, I'm always interested in like the early years. And, And when I've interviewed a lot of my subjects, it's one of the questions that they don't always get asked because you know you know depending on whatever whatever outlet that's be, that is interviewing them they don't always seem to be interested in the past but however myself as kind of like a I kind of like a almost a Chicano Ken Burns I like to go a little bit deep diving and sometimes you know but I really want to know about your history and I know you probably retold this story a lot but uh you know you're telling it to me this time so yeah. I want you to you know if there's anything that maybe you have never shared with any anybody else that's interviewed you. Trust me, I'm going to dig it all. But let's talk about your history. So to me, it all starts in Orange County. What was it like growing up in Orange County? I mean, it wasn't really what you would think. People would assume Orange County is evil and anti-Mexican, which it totally is. But that wasn't the environment that I grew up in. Because you say my story starts in Orange County. It really starts in Zacatecas, where my family's from. Mm. And so... Their diaspora, my great-grandpa and grandpa came to Anaheim specifically in like the late 1900s. So my grandpa grew up here, but then he moved back to Mexico and married my grandma, mi mama Chela. And so my mom was born in Zacatecas, came to the United States when she was nine, worked up in uh, Gilroy and Hollister for a little bit. Then they settled in Anaheim in the mid 1960s, but Mm -hmm. they were part of a diaspora. So growing up, like I was surrounded by Mexicans. Uh, And it's interesting because I always remember like looking when I was in kindergarten, I have a distinct memory of being taken to the beach on a field trip along with like the 12th, like the seniors from, I would assume it's Anaheim high school Mm because that was a high school that uh, pertained to my uh, elementary school, Thomas Jefferson, and eventually that's where I would go. And I remember those high schoolers were white. So I just assumed that every year that I moved up, 
the school system got more and more Mexican. So by the time I was a senior in 1997 from Anaheim, uh, I, like 90 some percent of the school district was Mexican. So I, I never say that I suffered much discrimination from white people growing up because I didn't. I suffered more discrimination from everyone for being a nerd. That's my, I mean, that's my opinion. It's like the nerd. And, and at a time where nerds were not cool, now it's different. Now kids could wear glasses and for the most part, people leave them alone. Not when I was growing up. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, you know, what are your, your parents now? Your parents are no longer with us. No, my mom, my mom's no longer with yeah, us. Okay. Uh, what were their names? Uh, Lorenzo and Maria, Lorenzo Ariano and Maria de la, de la Luz Ariano Miranda. Oh, you see, so you have the real long names. Yeah, because I've seen the Gustavo Ariano Miranda. You've used it on your Facebook profile. Yeah. Now, is that is that a way to kind of like have your own separate life? Because when people do the search or maybe they're trying to hunt you down. <laughs> no, no, no. You know, when I started as a journalist, I wanted to use the full name Gustavo mm -hmm. Ariano Miranda because that's a Mexican name. You yeah. Know? Like on my belt buckle, my cinto piteado, yeah. the, the, the acronym for my initials is GAM, Gustavo Ariano, which is my dad's last name and mm -hmm. Miranda is my mom's surname. Like my dad's uh, yeah. buckle is Loren Laf, Lorenzo Arellano Perez. But I don't know. I just never got around to it. Then I just got to establish as Gustavo Arellano. So when I started Facebook, you know, Facebook, Facebook also says that I was born in Yermo. So like, it's a bunch <laughs> of lies. <laughs> now, were your parents, uh, were they, were they really strict traditional Mexican parents? Yeah, but I was also the oldest mm -hmm. male, no less. And, you know, and all this of the family so I could get away with whatever I wanted. But I mean, I'm a nerd. So most of my most of the time growing up, I just wanted to read. I wanted to hang out with my best friends who were my cousins. So we were at my uncle Ezequiel's house yeah. and, and our mutual best friend Art lived across the street. So it wasn't like we were getting into a whole bunch like we we're going to get into a whole bunch of trouble. We weren't doing drugs. None of my friends have ever been in, into drugs. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them did marijuana which i think is stupid but whatever uh yeah some alcohol but like nothing like we weren't going around and you know we we're all nerds so no girls liked us so it was just <laughs> playing it was playing video games watching porn and uh reading books and mostly yeah. sports well above everything it was sports we all they all my friends were athletes i wasn't but i mm -hmm. would have my flashes of brilliance every once in a while so so, sorry, even if my parents were strict, there was really nothing to be strict about, you know? Yeah, but no, uh, how many siblings do you have? I'm the oldest of four. Oh, oldest of four. Uh, where, okay, so what, uh, brother, two sisters? Two boys, two girls. Ah, two boys, two girls. Okay, so you were, the, the, the various personalities within the kids were your, your brothers and, and sisters all kind of the same? Were you guys all nerds or one was the no, jock and no, all that? No. Uh, everyone's smart. I'm the smartest by far because I'm the nerdiest by far. But like my, my all my siblings played sports. Mm -hmm. My my sister, for crying out loud, one of them was a homecoming queen. Oh, so that's all yeah. you need to know about her. Mm -hmm. But you know, she she wasn't one of these like flighty ones. She ended up going to UCLA. Uh, my other sister went to UCLA as well for her masters. But we're all college educated. But I was always the weirdo. All my siblings, they are in. Uh, they're educators. Yeah, they're educators all in their mm -hmm. own way. I was the one who decided to become a reporter. So I, so I was always the weirdo. They were always more um, uh, just, just polite. I was always the more the crazy one, the one who wouldn't go to parties because I was busy reading. You grew up 90s Orange County. And what you described, it was like, it's definitely different from what I kind of envisioned. I have the answer. So like you kind of answered uh, some of the questions right there of how you described coming up. So 90s OC, it's kind of coming in the shadow of the early punk rock scene. 
Now I want to talk about kind of like the kind of the whole teen social environment that's going on in Orange County because here in Kern County we had what we have but when you think about Orange County Southern Cali definitely Orange County in the 90s the first thing I think about is like no doubt and like oh, yeah. and a lot of that stuff so you were you were right in the middle of all that you saw that happening all around you yes and no because again you have to remember and I'm high with 95% Latino mm-hmm. so we I mean we had punks yes but I didn't hang I mean Again, I didn't hang out with anyone. I hung out with my best friends. Mm-hmm. But just remembering, like the big cliques, there were rebel crews. There were taggered. There were there were rebel crews, tagging crews, and then straight up just cholos. Mm-hmm. Uh, no doubt, they didn't start blowing up really like nationally until my senior year in Anaheim, so mm-hmm. 1997. Then all of a sudden, oh yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> I never liked the. I never really liked the music. I mean, there's some songs that are jams for sure, but like I, you know, no, uh, I always will always be a defender of no of Gwen Stefani in particular because mm-hmm. everyone accuses her of cultural appropriation. Yeah. It's kind of true, but look, I grew up with white girls just like her mm-hmm. who ended up marrying Mexicans, yeah. and you know they didn't know what white culture was. If there were working class white kids growing up with Mexicans and Indians and all of that, and they thought that all their friends had the way cooler culture than their boring ass white culture. So of course. Gwen ended up pretending she was Indian and mecked and chola and oh, yeah. and all of those things. Like, yeah, like she shouldn't do that. But again, I know that type of girl. And those girls, and honestly, all those girls, like the one thing Gwen didn't do was marry a Mexican because all the white girls that I knew either did or dated Mexicans. I mean, uh, Gwen dated Tony Canal. You know, don't speak mm-hmm. is all about their relationship, you know. So, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but like, the, but at that time, yes, though, the punk scene was really big mm-hmm. in Orange County, going to Linda's Doll Hut and yeah, Social D. Great and, place. Um, the, the Offspring. Yeah, no, the Linda's Doll Hut's still there. But that just wasn't our Orange County. Our Orange County, again, or you know, was in Anaheim. And it was like, I knew more, you know, I knew more about James Dean than I would have, like, say, Darby Crash, you know? Oh, it's funny that you mentioned the whole thing with Gwen Stefani and how Latinos gravitated towards her. I mean, that because the, the Dickies and the kind of Chola look. Yeah. When, I, when I went to the pond for the Tragic Kingdom homecoming show, I it was definitely about 95% Mexicans in there. It's Chicanos oh, God. in there. At, 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 th- at this point, only Mexicans truly love Gwen. Yeah. And again, because we because we because we all know that type of white chick. We mm-hmm. all know that type of white girl. And we have no we have no hate. I mean, the younger vocals. Yeah, they'll be like, oh, you know, because I talked about Gwen to my class. I mm-hmm. teach uh, Latinx history of Orange County at Chapman University and all my students, none of them like Gwen. And they were shocked. That I was I was defending her. But they grew up in a different generation, you know, like, you know, now it's more multicultural or whatnot. But back mm-hmm. then it was all Mexican. And like, yeah, if you're white, you're a Mexican, too. Oh, totally. Wow. That's that is I, I can't believe how much time has passed from that. You know, like it, it's definitely a, a completely different scene. And and how like that whole no, no doubt thing in the Orange County connection and everything was just kind of like it was just such a huge wave. But, yeah, looking back on it now, it seems like it just happened. But, man, it has been you know, 20, 20 years, <laughs> 20 25 years, 25 years. Yeah. Years. Yeah. And when they did that reunion tour, it was almost like, uh, they were a brand new band and nobody knew who they were. And like the excitement wasn't as much in the air as I expected. Cause it mm. just seemed like, well, shoot, Gwen Stefani so huge. You think that they would really want to see no doubt. And I think there was kind of some nostalgia to it, but however, you know, that's it. That's its own other thing. Um, 
Okay, well, let's talk about books when you're in high school and you're talking about being a big reader. What were the authors that you were into? When I was in junior high, I especially liked Stephen King. And it's funny because I read. Of course. Stephen- <laughs> yes. The, uh, why, why do you say, of course? Well, That's you weird. know, well, That's because, funny. okay, when I was in high school, and we're talking about the 80s. So you're in the 90s yeah. and the 80s. The Stephen King books were, I mean, it's kind of like. Every kid had to completely read the the Stephen King canon, every That's single so Stephen King book. So you I know, thought I was the only one. Oh no 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 no! <laughs> and I mean, even my wife Miranda, you know, she's in Salt Lake City. Yeah. She just goes, "Of course, it was it was Anne Rice and Stephen King." So yeah, okay, uh, proceed. <laughs> yeah, no, so so Steve, but I stopped reading Stephen King. I'm trying to remember the last. Maybe Dolores Claiborne was the last one, and I've never read Stephen, any Stephen King novels since. I don't know why I dropped them. Not that, not mm-hmm. that I thought he was bad, although Dolores Claiborne was whatever. But also just the American classics. So especially in elementary school, for some, you know, because I was put into honors classes, or it was called Gay Gifted and Talented mm-hmm. Education. So I read Mark Twain. I read uh, John Steinbeck, The Red Pony, my senior year, The Grapes of Wrath, which my all, remains my all-time favorite novel. I read um, uh, The Red Badge of Courage. I like Johnny Tremaine, like, mm. you know, smaller, like what kind of kids books, but historic, Sounder, Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. And then when I get into junior high, or rather when I get into high school, I'm just reading sports books, trivia, uh, history, Joyce Carol Oates on boxing. Um, I'm trying to remember. You so know, like, a, like a lot of the sports uh, biographies? You know, where yeah, you read those? Okay. I, I was like, I was like biography, Sports Illustrated. And I was reading, by then I was reading newspapers. So I was reading Jim Murray, Alan Malamud, Randy Youngman, uh, uh, Mark Wicker, all the columnists for the LA Times and the Orange County yeah. Register, just devouring all that stuff. Okay. Okay. So pause right there. So when you're in junior high, high school, there was there school newspapers? Were you on the, were you on the team? Were no, the no, staff? no. I, I, I had no aspiration. I didn't know what I wanted. Mm. I just knew I wanted to read. Um, my senior year of high school, I did join the staff newspaper, but it only, it only, um, published for like three issues. And then like, I don't know, the administration shut us down for God knows what reason, or, you know, it was just a toxic relationship with the advisor who ended up having nervous breakdown, but he kind of brought it upon himself to be honest. Well, because Um, a lot of those high schools, I mean, a lot of high, bigger high schools, I mean, we had one and I wrote it, I wrote for it, but it was very, you know, it was just kind of like a couple sheets of paper. But, oh, sure. but I would think that in these larger cities that there would have some really big, you know, like an established newspaper that would be allowed to, you know, maybe be a little bit controversial but, or was it just kind no, of a lot of fluff in sports, you know, you sports have to coverage? Remember, yeah. You have to remember, though, that we were a Mexican high school mm. and our like it was it was basically filled with teachers in their 60s who had seen Anaheim transform in 30 years when they started from all white to all Mexican and they did not like us Mexican students. They were not giving us the resources that we needed and they were just counting down the years until retirement. So they weren't going to give a crap about us at all. Oh, wow. Wow. That's, yeah. that's, that's oh, wow. No, my, my, my high school, you know, uh, my wife just had her reunion or it was pre-union, um, just, you know, party with some of her friends and mm-hmm. there was like 20 of them who showed up and now oh, they all have wonderful, beautiful memories of high school and good for them. My high school memories, uh-uh. I, I, you know, I, I do talk to people from my high school, but I always joke, you know, cause they'll invite me. Oh, you should go come to our high school reunion. I'm like, I'll show up to the 50th and that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I have, I have, I have not, yeah, 
I have not. I have no fond. Like my fond memories of high school are very limited. I'm not saying every day was a nightmare, but there's just nothing there for me that I really care to revisit unless people ask me, and then you know, then I'll tell them stories. Wow. Okay. So this is this is really good because I have all these kind of preconceived yeah. notions about how life was for Gustavo Arellano to become this very acclaimed journalist. Everybody knows uh, all across California, across the nation, and seeing you on the news and everything like that. So this is very interesting because I it it's definitely Definitely a, a very common kind of story that had no plans of being a journalist, but mm-hmm. somehow you get pulled into this. Okay, so the, the whole developing uh, your interests and everything like that, were you an avid newspaper reader? Were you reading all the news or were you just kind of like, I just want to read the sports and the funny page and that's it? Yep, sports and comics. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, I'd glance in the news or some of the other sections. So I remember random stories, especially with the LA Times because it was such yeah. a well-written newspaper. And it's funny because when my mom passed away, we cleared out the attic of just stuff. Mm -hmm. And so up there, I had a bunch of front pages from the 90s, like O.J. Simpson, you know, found innocent, Mm -hmm. uh, the Oklahoma City bombing. I didn't have it's interesting because I don't have any 9-11 headlines, even though I subscribed to papers at the time. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. But like, uh, you know, a lot of big stories, the North Hollywood shootout that happened with the L.A. Times, like. I had a bunch of them because I had subscriptions early on, even though all I would read would be the sports section. Then just slowly getting into the news. But I didn't really start getting into news and the rest of the paper until I got I got into college. Mm, yeah. But my journalism school, if you will, was reading sports and sports mm-hmm. writing is some of the best writing in newspapers. And so between Sports Illustrated and the L.A. Times and Orange County Register, it was a great education. I interviewed um, a young reporter here in uh, Bakersfield who – one of the few uh, CSUB alumni, fellow CSUB alumni who actually like graduated from the comm program and got into journalism. And oh, wow. she said that the best advice that she got from an instructor, it was when she was going to Bakersfield College and writing for the Renegade Rip. She said, if you can write sports, you can do it. You can write about anything because it's sports yeah. is constantly changing and you have to get follow all the data and all the statistics and everything like that. And so it was like, start with sports. The rest comes easy. <laughs> That's true. That's, yeah. I, I, and the irony is I've never, I mean, I've written about sports, but it's never been a focus. Of hmm. Since you're from the 90s, when I think about Latinos and news, because now you have like, you know, you have the National Association of Hispanic Journalists, the you know, Chicano Media Association, everything like that. But I guess discovering Latinos and news, I think that my earliest memory, <laughs> and it's really funny now looking back, but like seeing one of the only kind of big Latinos on TV that we saw back in the 80s when I was growing up was Geraldo Rivera on 2020. Yeah. So you saw him doing his thing and he'd been around for a long time. He had a very big reputation. I mean, my parents love watching, oh, Geraldo Rivera's on 2020, so you know the story's gonna be good. And then you just start seeing the downfall and all the, and everything like that. But besides Mexican TV news, which my parents would watch, we only saw Latino TV reporters on the LA stations that we get, which we would get KTLA, we got Channel yeah. Nine, yeah. Um, and I think until maybe until the late '80s into the '90s, do you start seeing more of a Latino presence in regular anchors? And now, you know, we're everywhere. But who are you following? Because you're talking about in college, so it is a little bit later than I expected. I thought maybe you were like, I'm going to be Scoop Ariano. You know, <laughs> so there's there's obviously this is good so that people really get to know your journey. But 
Who were some of no, the? Re- I, who, yeah, keep going. Well, I I went to school for film, and then I got into film studies. I didn't get into journalism until by by accident my senior year in high school. And even when I was in film, I mean, I wanted like I wanted to be Quentin Tarantino. I wanted to be Martin Scorsese, and wow. I, I'm not going to be one of these people who are like, oh, you know. I, you know, there was a lack of representation. And so, mm-hmm. like, I did, I didn't think about those things. So, I grew up watching news. I watched Channel 5 and I watched Channel 9. And so, the people that I were watching on Channel 5, it was Hal Fishman, Stu Nahan, Ed Arnold. Uh, on Channel 9, of course, Pat, uh, well, it was Jerry Dumphy and Pat Harvey. And so, like, I didn't notice that they were, I mean, when I would see a Latino, like, say, Tony Valdez on Channel 11 mm-hmm. or Kim Baldonado on Channel 4, I would just think like, oh yeah, that's cool. But like, I didn't think like, oh, there needs to be more of us or I need to find those people. And then when, when I was reading uh, newspapers, mm-hmm. especially, I was not, I would have noticed the Latino names. I wasn't seeing any and I didn't start noticing them until 1999 when I started getting basically what started my career yeah. in everything. And the names that I saw, there were two called. Two columnists, and, uh, and for the LA Times, the late Agustin Gursa, and for the Register, Yvette Cabrera, and they were like, you know, you'd think I'd be proud of them, like, oh, you know, Latino columnists, but I just found them very cheesy. I found them, <laughs> you know, this is where this is what gets me in trouble with a lot okay. of, you know, a lot, a lot of professional Latino reporters, where I'm like, well, they were cheesy, and I get it, it was the 90s, like, people thought like, oh, you know, we'd have a black columnist, and we'd have an Asian columnist, and we mm-hmm. need to have a Latino columnist. And they were not allowed to write about really anything else. And a lot of times I found that the columns were just apologias. They were just um, like, oh, yeah, we're so mistreated, and we're victims all the time. And to this day, I say, like, I was never taught to be a victim. I'm a victim of nobody. Yeah, mm-hmm. I got bullied. Yeah, I got harassed. Yeah, I got this, this, and that. But my parents taught me, like, all right, if, if life's going to mess with you, then you either mess with it back or better yet, just shut up and continue doing what you do and, like, you'll win that way. Yeah. Okay, so before we get into uh, getting into, like, a lot of your journalism stuff, when you were talking about, okay, so you were going to film school, you wanted to get into movies and everything like that, where had you started writing scripts? And, I mean, do you have, like, a, like a library of stuff that's kind of sitting back there in your office? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I, I have documents things that i did going back to kindergarten my mom kept almost all of it and i remember <laughs> almost all of it screenplays i mean i didn't know how to write screenplays uh, i there are screenplays that i wrote in college and mm-hmm. i have them i mean the real treasures i have to find i know i have them somewhere are the film are the student films that i made at Chapman university mm-hmm. and i le- i left filmmaking because First of all, I realized a career in Hollywood would be hard and like it and I needed to make money soon because my parents were immigrants and like we weren't exactly you know, we weren't we were never poor, but we weren't exactly pulling in the dough or they weren't pulling in the dough. Um but so I just I remember getting annoyed because uh, one of my teachers said that my filmmaking style was two year opinion just because I wouldn't you know, just because I would hold on to a shot for like more than five seconds. I'm like I was trying to be like Stanley Coon. Kubrick or some of these other people. Mm-hmm. Again, there was no there was no Latino um, there nothing Latino clicked for me per se um, because it was just part of my life. In other words, I'd never really thought of being a professional Latino until activism sort of got into me, mm-hmm. and then that was you know then that was a different story. But yeah, no, all my papers, all my archives. I always tell my friends like, all right, who's gonna get my papers? Because I have a lot of them, and sadly, I'd have way more if I kept all my emails. But what are you gonna do? 
Yeah. What do you think about, uh, what are your thoughts on Francis Truffaut? Oh, Truffaut, oh my God, the 400 Blows, Jean-Luc Godard, the whole French New Wave. I, once I got into that style of filmmaking, Jewels at Gym, mm-hmm. um, I wanted to be, I, again, I wasn't looking to La Época de Oro. I wasn't looking to Gregory Nava. I like Mi Familia. Don't get me wrong. I, mm-hmm. I stand and deliver. I liked all these films. <laughs> But I mean, those were not my heroes. Like uh, I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to do uh, a, a version of the 400 Blows, or mm-hmm. more, more, or better yet, Breathless. That's what I was into. Ooh, yeah. And, <laughs> and you know, uh, yeah, you know, you know exactly. Oh, yeah. what I'm talking about. Like, <laughs> I own them. I'm a, I'm a Criterion Collection. Oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, um, I wish I had the time to to do that. But mm-hmm. um, that was just, you know, what. That those were my intellectual heirs, John Paul Sartre and ex- existentialism, Immanuel mm-hmm. Kant. I wasn't looking at Emiliano Zapata. I mean, I had pride for all those things, sure, but like that, that's not, that wasn't my northern star, so to speak, or my mm-hmm. north star, so to speak. This is wild. Okay, so. Aspiring, yeah, you're, aspiring, you're, yeah. you're, you're bringing you're bringing answers out of me that I've never said before. So good job. Oh yeah, well that's that's <laughs> what I'm talking about. This is these are the parts. Once you you just kind of gave me a little, uh, you op- open the door a little bit. I'm gonna. Oh no no no, we got to address this because I think this is what people need to know. Fast forward into your entrance into journalism. When did that happen? And what was your first official writing gig where you actually got paid? Huh. Uh, that. Paid, paid. That would all. That would have been OC Weekly easy. Um, was it? Yeah, yes, it was. Because I, I, I mean, I've told this story many times before. But the long story short was, I was volunteering on a campaign for Santa Ana Council member. She was running for Santa Ana Council. She became Santa Ana Council member. So late at night, I'm licking basically envelopes. And then I go to throw something away, and in the trash can, there's a copy of a newspaper I'd never heard of before called OC Weekly. By then, I was already involved in political activism against anti-Mexican idiots in Anaheim. And I find this newspaper. I think it is an incredible newspaper. They had an April Fool's issue, just like The Onion, where it was all these fake news stories, like actual fake news, not fake, fake news. So I wrote a letter to the editor uh, you know, pretending to criticize them, but secretly mm-hmm. being a fan. And then once I got the attention of the editor, I said, hey, like, how can I get you guys to do a story on this political campaign I'm, I'm volunteering mm-hmm. for? And they didn't do a story on that, but instead they did a story on something else. So I became a tipster for them. Eventually, I, over- I overwhelmed them with so many tips that they said, well, or they must have thought to themselves, well, if this this guy obviously knows what makes a story. How about if you... Uh, how about if they write it or he should write something. So my first paid gig, I got paid a hundred dollars to do a 700 word story about how the Republican party was using Pete Wilson in 2000 during the 2000 presidential campaign to scare Mexicans into voting Democrat. And I still have the pay stub. I still have the article. I still have the mailer that I cited. My mom made a whole little collage for me of it which I still have to this day. I need to put a new frame on it, but yeah, I still have it. <laughs> that's, that's wild. She was proud of me. Yeah, of course. Of I, I didn't think I, I think I, I didn't think I wanted to be a reporter at that mm-hmm. time. Remember I was, this would have been my senior year at Chapman. I was already applying to go to grad school to, uh, to use, I eventually I went to UCLA and got my master's in Latin American studies. I mm-hmm. thought I was going to, you know, I thought I was going to be a scholar, but something about news, something about writing about news and, especially writing about topics that no one else was writing about just really rang with me. And to be able to go after idiots, that really appealed to me because my life until then and still to this day, 
was having to deal with idiots wanting to mess with me. Yeah. Oh, most definitely. So when you get that first gig, you get the first check. Did you just continue kind of freelancing? And what were you what were you doing for, for work? Were you working in retail or doing anything like that and then freelancing um, on the side? Or what I were you was, doing? I was basically a data monkey for a collection agency. In other words, they would give me a bunch of files of people who were uh, past due on their Toyota accounts, and I would just <laughs> input them into, um, you know, into the computer, like with those old dot matrix computers, mm. old, old, old school ones. Um, they must, they liked me, and they even said like, oh, you know, do you want to get into this industry? You could be a manager. I'm like, hell no. They just make the bills. <laughs> Hell no! Wow, I love it. I love it. Um, yeah, I mean, hey man, it's a living. You got to you got to pay yeah. the bills. Okay, so then when did you finally get that jump into like this is going to be become a full time thing for me to be, be a reporter? My article on Pete Wilson comes out in November two thousand two thousand one. I'm finishing college or my my bachelor's degree at Chapman University. I enter into UCLA for my master's for a semester, which I didn't really care for. Meanwhile, I'm, I'm freelancing more and more and more for uh, the OC Weekly and some other publications as well. Like, I'm going to get some sort of notoriety. Yeah how, how many, have... yeah, how many freelancing gigs did you have at one time? Like, what was the most? Well, that would be until that. I mean, my record was in 2018, but I'm getting ahead of that. But uh -huh. when I was starting, let's see, I was writing for Pacific News Service, which no longer exists. Mm. And yeah, ended up rebranding itself as New American Media, but... I freelance for them. Mm -hmm. I freelance a lot, actually, for the Jewish Journal of Greater Los Angeles. So that was really cool, um, just because I, you know, I was familiar with Jewish culture, mm -hmm. uh, and so I was, you know, and I was writing stories about interactions between Jews and Latinos, and not always nice. Uh, I did stuff for the OC Weekly. Um, I have all those clippings, by the way, from from those early years somewhere. Mm -hmm. But really, just those publications. I wasn't really freelancing much. Just because I, I was interested in it, and so slow. And remember, I didn't know how to be a reporter, so I was terrible at it. But slowly but surely, ahí la estaba picoteando, just you know, picking at it slowly but surely. So by the time the winter quarter at UCLA starts, I have this class with. He's a. I'm not gonna name him, but people know who he is. He's a legend in the field of Latin American studies, a gabacho. Um, came in with his dog and with a woman who just sat in the, you know, was sat in the corner. She wasn't a student, but she was just there sitting in the corner. Let's his dog uh, roam around on the table where we're supposed to have our discussion. Mm -hmm. Totally cocky guy. I'm like, no, I'm not going to take this class. So with our, you know, after the break, I dropped out of his class and I told my, the editor of the OC Weekly at the time, Will, I told Will, hey, I want to drop out of school and become a full-time reporter. And he said, well, you shouldn't do that. First and foremost, I wouldn't have a job for you. Secondly, you're still not a good reporter. You're starting. More more importantly, this program at UCLA is only two years, and they're paying you. I had a stipend to go to UCLA. So, I, mm -hmm. I you know, like, it wasn't just a scholarship. The scholarship I already had for the two years, but I had a stipend. So they were paying me to go to UCLA um, for the first year. So he, so he said, you're you're – you would basically be rejecting free money. Uh, just stick with it. You know, stick with it. Let's work on you becoming a reporter. And if by the time you graduate, if you've gotten to a certain level, then yeah, we'll make a job for you. That's exactly what happened. I stayed at UCLA. I started freelancing more. I mean, I got all A's in my my classes. I think mm -hmm. yeah, no, I got all A's in my classes. And then when I graduated in two thousand and three, lo and behold, a month later, I had a full time job at OC Weekly. 
How soon after that did Ask a Mexican appear? Oh, Ask a Mexican wouldn't happen until November 2004. And by then, you know, 2004 was a very, I thought that was the best year OC Weekly ever had uh, because, well, you know, uh, one colleague of mine put, uh, um, uh, uh, the mayor of Huntington Beach, you know, uh, exposed her so she would end up going to prison. Another guy, another colleague of mine uh, covered this notorious gang rape trial in Orange County. And we were like just defining all this coverage. And I was doing stories on the Catholic Church sex abuse scandal. Like, you know, I was a one man spotlight, like, you know, mm-hmm. spotlight the film about the Boston Globe taking down the Archdiocese of Boston. Well, that was me with the Diocese of Orange and Ask a Mexican, which ends up getting me the first real notoriety outside of Orange County. Yeah. That starts. In the, yeah, that, that's that starts after the 2004. Was it the 2004 election that exact issue i think it was the same issue where we had george w bush flipping off um we got a it was a video of george w bush flipping off the camera and we got that still and we put it on the cover of oc weekly which was got us national attention for being so vulgar but again it was real Mm -hmm. and that issue we had um an article drop out, so we needed to fill the space. This is a time when, like, those people was near its fattest. That would be 2005, to be mm-hmm. specific. But um, so uh, my editor, Will, he suggested that I do, you know, we would do joke columns, like fake columns, like, and we'd call it, hey, a new column. And so we decided to do this Ask a Mexican thing, saying, like, all right, let's just do, let's just do a pretend advice column about Mexicans. Just do it one time. Mm-hmm. Well, the reaction to it, was so overwhelming, both good and bad, that we thought, well, let's continue doing this until there's no more questions to be answered. Well, that that didn't happen. <laughs> Ask a Mexican went from Ask a Mexican went from November of 2004 to October 2017. So that Jesus. is what, a 14, yeah, a 13 year <laughs> run. And I could I could have continued doing that column forever, except I did not own the. The, the trademark to mm-hmm. ask a Mexican um, that was with the company. And that at the point it was a idiot owner by, by 2017. And, and like, cause I thought of doing app thought of doing that, but I'm like, nah, it has to go with the name. I'm not going to like, if I just continue doing it, but without the name, it's just going to seem that I'm holding on to the past. And I've never been about the past. It's like, what's mm-hmm. a, what's in front of me and what's ahead of me. So the popularity of ask a Mexican, you know, that's, that's a little small segment. The stories that you're doing, you're doing the heavy hitting stories. You're doing exactly investigative pieces, uh, the church scandals, the the KKK and everything like that. Were you ever at a point where you're like, hey, I really wish people would know me more for my investigative reporting and not so much Ask a Mexican? No, no. (laughs) Yes and no. Because you're obviously a subscriber to my newsletter. And Mm -hmm. I have a, you know, if if you go to GustavoAriano.org, you can subscribe to my free newsletter. It comes out every Saturday and it's really just done. Mm -hmm to push out to the world everything that I've done in the previous week, but I'll always write a, a small letter, uh, kind of like a, 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 a missile. Um, and so what uh, ended up, you know, so I tell the story about how this past year, the University of North Carolina invited me to speak to their journalism program, one of their classes specifically about writing columns and specifically about the columns that I do for the Los Angeles Times, which is as I call it, Southern California, everything, and a bunch of the West and beyond. 
And I was very flattered because usually when I get speaking in invitations, I'm asked to speak about being a Latino or ask a Mexican or Orange County or uh, my food journalism. And I have no no issue talking about any of those. But sometimes I think like, well, you know, I've also done all these things as well. Why am I never asked to talk about these other things? And, it, and that says more about um, – the people doing the in invitations than it does about my own work. So, and it's funny because people will know me for different things. Well, I mean, first and foremost, very, very few, like 99.999% of California has no idea who I am, which is fine. That always grounds me. But if people do know me, they usually know me for a part of me and mm -hmm. rarely for the full me. Like in Orange County, people know me. Oh, yeah, you're the guy who wrote, you know, who was an OC Weekly and did all these things. Mm -hmm. Food people know like, oh, yeah, you wrote about tacos. Uh, church uh, sex abuse victims obviously know me for my work on the church. Nowadays in L.A., like, oh, you're the guy who writes about all those crazy council members in Los Angeles. and Or, you know, you wrote about the uh, lunatic sheriff. So everyone knows me for something, but few people know me for everything. And I, it, it can bother me if I think about it, but I'm like, eh. I, I should be happy people know me for anything, period. And more importantly, there's stories for me to do, and I'd rather focus my attention – my attentions on the stories that I need to do. Let me ask you about the being the editor of the OC Weekly. I, I, I'm not exactly familiar with the trajectory right there, but uh, huh. I, I know that you were the editor, but like, how was that experience and how did you get that gig? Well, that happened because the bosses, not Will, there, there was a there was a schism at OC Weekly We in 2006. We got bought out by a chain that owned LA Weekly. Well, no, they ended up buying LA Weekly as well, mm -hmm. but it was based out of Phoenix. It was called The New Time. And so they were hated by most people in the alternative press for being libertarian, supposedly conservative. I liked them because they were, you know, they took no prisoners and they were beholden to no one and their investigative work was, uh, you know, was impeccable. And so, but when they, when they bought OC Weekly, three quarters of the staff left and created their own newspaper in Long Beach I was invited to go, but I refused because I'm like, I don't care about nothing against Long Beach, but I don't care about it. I care about Orange County. Mm -hmm. And so the owners must have seen that I could be, a, you know, I, that I had potential in me. And the, uh, the editor that they put to be in charge of us, he sucked. He was a nice guy, but he was terrible. So in 2010, they made me a managing editor. And then within a year, like there's such dissatisfaction with uh, the, the, the staffers against the editor that – uh, management let him go and then made me editor. That would have been the fall of 2011. A lot of, it's interesting, a lot of the key moments in my professional career have always fallen at the end of the year and usually in the fall. And so I became editor in 2011. I left the post in 2017 when I left OC Weekly. Mm -hmm. And it was great because I never stopped writing. Mm -hmm. And I really, um, you know, I really pushed for us to cover Orange County and the way Orange County was, you know, go after, Comfort the afflicted, afflict the comfortable, hire people who are from Orange County, not outsiders, because Orange County is a very hard place to understand. Not any place is, but Orange County in particular, because mm -hmm. a lot of our history is not really known, even to the people who live there. And when I left, the staff was, you know, completely diverse. Fifty percent of us were people of color. We had age diversity. We had uh, sexual orientation diversity. We had a little bit of everything. We really were like a family. But uh, and you know, my, and my writing. No, no one, very few people now will credit my editing um, or, you know, what I did with the OC Weekly. They'll remember me more as a writer than an editor, which, again, of course, fine. But look, the reason Orange County 
got the notoriety that it did at the end in a good way was because of what we did at OC Weekly. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and I guess I was the boss, but and like, and I always tell people, you want to see my true legacy? Look at the people who worked under me or interned under me, my coaching tree, so to speak. I have people working at the New York Times, at the Atlantic, at NBC News, at the LA Times. I mean, uh, six of us from the OC Weekly are now at the LA Times, and they all work, and the, the other, you know, myself and five other folks, mm-hmm. and they all worked under me. And yeah, you know, and it, they, I was able to see in them when they started talent that they didn't see, and I was able to foster that in them. So I think that's the best legacy I could possibly hold. Like, yeah, my writing, that's great, but look at the people who I helped get into journalism, and, um, yeah. 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 Oh, no, I mean, I mean, in the Valley, uh, Melissa Montalvo with the Fresno Bee, mm-hmm. she was my student at Orange Coast College. We never worked together, yeah. but she was my student. And I mean, look at her. So you, you want to talk about legacy that continues. I, I live, I, I always wanted to help people out because that's what I was taught by mm-hmm. the folks at OC Weekly, like help out people, especially people who have talent that they still don't know about. And that's exactly what I continue to do. And like people, you know, people could characterize me however they want, but go talk to the people who are part of my coaching tree. They'll tell you a whole different Gustavo. Oh, definitely. Most definitely. Well, you know, as I, as I mentioned, we've talked about this before. It's like I followed your work through the OC Weekly. Of course, Ask a Mexican. That's how I discovered you. But when you start getting into, we start seeing a little bit of the trouble happening at OC Weekly. And then eventually the layoffs that were announced at OC Weekly t- 2017, you know, what did the suits expect you to do as the editor? They're like, hey, we're no, going to do this. What, how did that go down? What was the, what was the real it, story? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've, I've talked about this as well. Mm-hmm. It, it, um, it was one guy, a, a boat millionaire from Newport Beach, who I still don't know why he bought the paper. It makes no sense. He wanted me to lay off half the staff, but I refused. And I delayed any motion on it for, what was it? I got the news in May, June, July, August, September, October, five months. So I delayed layoffs for five months. And, you know, I, I gave him a proposal. I asked him to make me publisher of OC Weekly because he said we were losing mm-hmm. money. I'm like, make me the publisher as well. Make me in charge of making money for you. Give me six months. If after six months I'm not making money for you, you could fire me and I'll tell the world, like, I deserve this firing because I made promises that I wasn't able to keep. And you'll save all this goodwill. Nope, he refused. I gave him a plan. I said, if you don't like my plan, I'll, you know, I'll quit. And he mm-hmm. said, well, you know, it's not going to work out. And you know, so I, I thanked him. I shook his hand, and then I announced on Twitter that I was quitting, and I would tell the entire story in the Tom Likas show, and that's exactly what I did. And it made the L.A. Times, New York Times, it made national news because mm-hmm. you don't really hear of, of editors leaving their dream job and, um, you know, to lay, to avert layoffs. I mean, you have, Fernanda Santos just did that at Futuro Media, and that's a brave thing to do because you don't have any job prospects. You don't have, you know, you're at a dream job, and you're trying to save journalists, and it doesn't always work out. And it's, I mean, I was able to stave off layoffs for five months. Uh, the owner of the OC Weekly he would start laying people off a couple months later and then ended up shutting down the paper in 2000 in the fall again, the fall of 2019, the Thanksgiving weekend, no less. Um, the newspaper and nothing against my colleagues, but the newspaper was never able to recover from uh, from losing me. Oh. I mean, if I, you know, I, I wrote a whole bunch yeah. of stuff. People mm-hmm. were inspired to work under me and nothing against the people who followed me. But that's just what happened. Break time. We'll be back. It's the Baco Tunes podcast with Matt Munoz. 
If you're injured at work, you need a team who knows the law, a team respected by our community and the legal industry, a team certified as specialists in work injury law. Chain Cone Clark, the team you need when it matters most. Thank you, thank you, gracias, thank you. Uh, before I begin, how many of you are from Orange County? Nine four nine seven one four, baby, all the way. The, 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 the only reason I ask is because I think it's a historic day today. Not just because you folks are graduating, because I'm from Orange County, I'm from Anaheim, and Flavia is from Irvine. So you, your two speakers are from Orange County. And what's better, what's best about this is traditionally in Orange County, USC was a school that all the Orange County, you know, idiots would go to. I am glad to say that the best people from Orange County go to UCLA. All of you right there and her. You can reserve judgment on me. Now my speech. Now, when you mentioned the Tom Likas show, because that was one of the questions, because we would get Tom Likas over here in syndication yeah. in Bakersfield. And so I knew that you would appear on in, in his show. And I still follow him on X. And, you know, he's still yeah. he's, he's active, but not as active as he used to be. But how long have you known him? Did you guys oh, you were always on there? No, not not always. I okay. in two thousand. What what changed my life was a front page story that my now colleague Daniel Hernandez wrote for the L.A. Times about Ask a Mexican. Mm -hmm. That got me a book deal. That got me national attention. That got me college gigs. It, it literally changed my career forever. I mean, I wonder what would have happened if Daniel had not. I mean, I still think I would have gotten done a lot of things that I did, but it just rushed everything far faster uh, <laughs> than I could have ever imagined. And um, so to, I, I had been listening to Tom forever, of course, but Tom had me on in 2006. And so I was a monthly guest on his show until the very end that he started doing his own streaming service. And I was a monthly guest mm -hmm. uh, almost from the start. So like, I think it was 2012 until I left OC Weekly in 2017. Wow. I know. <laughs> Let's see. I'm going to be on Tom Likas show. And I was like, dang, man, I haven't heard Tom Likas. I remember I used to listen to him like yeah. on my, when I was a delivery driver and he would do the thing about like have woman to, you know, flash to roll down your flash window Friday. and flash. Yep. <laughs> flash Friday, absolutely. Blow me up, Tom. Oh, to Tom's not for everyone, but Tom, I've always appreciated because he always said thing. He always said what he felt. He mm -hmm. didn't back down from it a lot of the advice that he gave was common sense and specifically to men like it was common sense knowledge and oh my god those shows were epic epic because i would get drunk on the air i mean i'd have a designated driver of yeah. course and then like my friend would always drive me but by the third hour i was drunk out of my <laughs> mind and it, and it was and it was called the be funny so i'd be there for three full hours like the first hour was me and tom talking the second mm -hmm. hour was me answering ask a Mexican question or questions about Mexicans. The third hour was called be funny where people would just say jokes and people would insult me, call me all sorts of things. And I would be laughing the entire time. It was great. <laughs> I, was I, I, no, keep yeah, going. I could not do that anymore. Sadly, I'm sure the LA times would not be happy with me appearing on the Tom like show, at least in that capacity, like that free freestyle capacity, but it was fun. Yeah. Is there an archive anywhere to hear any of those episodes? You, I think you'd have to become a member of Tom's mm -hmm. to get because he he hasn't done a podcast in a while, so I don't even know if he's still doing that. But 
you had access to all the archives for sure. So I'm sure someone else, I mean, Tom definitely has them. I don't know about other people, but like, I, I got, you know, if, and if people are saying like, oh, we got to dig up info to, um, mm-hmm. you know, that could cancel him. I never said anything that I wouldn't have an explanation for nowadays. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Were, I mean, those, the days of those type of radio shows, I mean, they kept, us to, and when I was like that was like around the time when I hadn't even gone back to college when I used to listen to those shows and those kept us entertained on as I was a delivery driver for many years yeah. and it was like what would we do without those crazy shows I oh mean, my god it was, it, 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 and podcasts are fine but I have to say there is something about the tension in someone calling live on the air yep. and you don't know where the conversation is mm-hmm. going to go podcasts can't do that podcasts are just friends talking to each other yep. or you know, people talking, like having conversations, which is fine and important, but like, I want to, and this is why I like, I, the person I've listened to forever is Howard Stern. I don't even call him Howard Stern. Mm-hmm. I just say Howard. Yeah. And Howard, I, you know, people now say, oh, he's not the same as before. And he is, he absolutely is. You just have to know sort of his trajectory and his, his neuroses, neuroses. But Howard is at his best when he's having people call in and trash talking him or trash talking guests, like, cause you don't know where the conversation's gonna go. Mm-hmm. And that to me, like, I would have loved to have had my own talk show, but it just didn't work out that way, which is okay. I mean, but I kind of do that though on Instagram Live when I, you know, take people's questions mm-hmm. live. It's different when I'm just reading stuff and like I'm not interacting with people, but I, I, I like not just attention, but as sort of the, as the host, mm-hmm. you have to be able to entertain and you have to be able to keep your audience because the audience could hang up at any minute and i like that challenge yeah yeah oh no this is the golden agent remember uh larry king open phone friday yeah and we come on really late at night and you just listen to it and then um uh what's it called uh uh well there, well there was talk back and then there was talk net and then there was um uh, the other guy used to do the conspiracy theory with the UFOs and uh, everything. Coast to coast, with yeah. George, uh, well, it was Art Bell and George Norrie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and oh, he yeah. and he had his own thing, and it was just like you know, any conspiracy, we'll talk about oh, anything. I'm God, not going to judge you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's great. Oh man, okay, so we definitely on point we're on the same level with that. Okay, so back to freelancing because after post OC Weekly, you go to the LA Times now as someone with the with the kind of a reputation for not only being a, a, a force in SoCal, you know, but also someone who attracts and maybe courts a little controversy. Did you have to go through any sort of serious kind of ridiculous vetting process to get to the times? I mean, cause it would seem like it would be a no brainer that they would just, once they found out, you know, were people trying to hire you or did you, was it hard to get that next gig? Yeah, no, first and foremost, I don't court controversy. People think I just throw crap on the wall just to see if it sticks or goes through. And I don't. I, mm-hmm. I write the truth. If people want to find me controversial, that's on them, not on me. The Times had been recruiting me forever. I remember as far back as 2007, it'd be one editor or one person after another. And I never had any ambition to <laughs> – excuse me. I never had any ambition to join the LA Times because I had my dream gig already at OC Weekly. Yeah, yeah the pay was crappy um, and the audience was just Orange County, but my mission was to make Orange County a better place to live in, and that was not going to happen at the LA Times. And I would write for other publications as well if I had to scratch that itch. Like I would come out on NPR shows yeah. or you know public radio shows nationally uh, syndicated. Um, I would write for Reason Magazine, a libertarian publication, little things here and there. Um, 
So when I finally landed at the LA Times, I mean, I never got told, oh, you can't write this. I mean, I honestly got more in trouble uh, by my jefe Hector Becerra for the stuff I would tweet. And I have not, I have not gotten <laughs> reprimanded. You know, and it'd be more like, hey, Gustavo, you, re you really shouldn't be going like being say saying that or going that far or anything like mm -hmm. that. I never got in trouble, trouble, you know, it's more just like, hey, man, I'm telling you this as someone who cares about you. So I haven't done that in a while. So, hey, I guess I learned. But no, I never said like I never got a talking to saying you can't write this way. Mm -hmm. You have to write the LA Times way like I just it was a natural meld. I mean, part of it was, though, in 2018. I got brought on as a columnist for the opinion section mm -hmm. as a freelancer. So it was, it was a weekly column, but it was on a freelance basis. So, um, so I kind of got the, the hang of how to write for the LA times. And of course, every writer is going to be a little bit different, but the LA times voice, I was able to master uh, the master. I don't want to say that, but like, you know, I was able to figure out how to do uh, pretty quickly. So if there was conversation, I mean, the one thing without I losing, remember, without losing your personal voice though. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, writing, and I get it. Every publication has a different voice, and your job is to be able to either master it or at least mimic it. So, like, I wrote for The New Yorker. They had a style. Mm -hmm. NPR, they had a style. I still write for Alta Journal. They have a style. Like, everything's different. And so, for the Times, it's a lot of information compact, but done in a literary way uh, that allows you to be funny. But, it, you know, as you know, it depends. I got more leeway than other writers when i was just a reporter for sure and definitely as a columnist mm -hmm. and um if there was a vetting process i mean i wouldn't know i mean it's kind of like just what the la times does like you go through multiple interviews with various people they want to sort of gauge who you are mm -hmm. the most quote unquote not even warning but like shelby grad who's uh hector's hefe um, he, you know, before I started, he told me you're coming in with an ad, not with an attitude, you're coming in with a reputation, but he meant it in a good way. He was saying like, people are really excited that you're going to start working for us and mm -hmm. they can't wait to see what you're going to do. And he said, and I told them, uh, Shelby, as far as I'm concerned, I have no reputation with, with LA times. I'm your newest employee. I have to prove myself to everyone. And here I am. Uh, it was almost was uh, I started 19 fall no the December of 19 20 21 22 23 it's almost going to be four years that I've been with the LA Times and I still feel that, that I have to prove myself <laughs> and I don't mean that I don't mean that in a you know in a hurt way or in a bitter way it's just reality it's like okay I'm a columnist okay like and what yeah. you know but <laughs> I, I, I I gotta keep I, I gotta keep pushing I gotta keep topping myself i gotta keep doing better and better because if i don't then i shouldn't have a job yeah well you know working you working and pro producing at such a high volume i mean it comes with a lot of expectation i assume you know uh you know but not only from the readers and your followers but you know yourself as a writer you know in what ways do you kind of keep a balance where you just you know how do you know what's going to click and what's not going to click and just kind of because like you said you have if you're writing, if you if you contribute to different outlets, everybody has a different type of voice. Everybody has a t certain type of expectation. You know, how do you just kind of keep it all in in perspective and balance to make sure that it's 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 getting it's reaching to the point where you're like, all right, this is ready to go. This is ready to file. I, I, I'm not writing for anyone. I'm only writing for myself. If I try to write for 
maximum clicks or maximum views. I wouldn't mm -hmm. be writing about what I'm writing about. And what do I write about? Things that interest me. Uh, I write about how I see Southern California at the moment. And more mm -hmm. importantly, I always think, especially as a columnist, you have to be prophetic. The prophetic voice is that you call out what's ahead of you and what's in front of you and how things are right now. And more importantly, you do not have you did not kowtow to any group or any person. You just write the truth, whatever it is. Um, it's not a style of journalism for everyone. Uh, you know, I, I call it vibe journalism. Like people, uh, you know, you kind of have to sense what's going on more so than following data. Like, you know, for baseball, I would say I'm a gut person. I'm not, a, I think analytics are stupid. They, yeah, they tell you a whole bunch of things, but what fun is, what, what fun is it uh, figuring out things? Or, you know, what, what fun is it putting numbers into a machine and then, then the machine telling you how to do something? No, I'd rather just, you know, take my swings and, you know, figure it out on my own. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, so let me, let me get a little bit something, a uh, little bit in, in, off the side. Okay, so your wife, Delilah, I just saw that, you know, she, well, she, is, she owns the Alta Baja market. Yeah. Correct. Now, where's that located at? Downtown Santana off of 4th and Bush. Yeah, okay. So everybody out there listening, go over there and visit and, you know, spend some money. Okay. I saw she was just awarded a nice grant from Siete Family Foods, which is, that's amazing. Um, yeah. Now, how is it being the spouse of a, of a, of a store owner? Because it seems like you guys are both, those are two stressful occupations. Who has the more stress in their life? Oh, she does. One, one million percent. It's different. It's different type of stress, but like <laughs> I tell people, I like getting a paycheck every two weeks. She barely started paying herself last year, and like her paycheck, she only gets like five dollars a paycheck. That mm. because she's putting, she'd rather everyone else get paid. She has, you know, she's a sole owner. She has no investors. I don't know why people. I don't know how people are their own bosses. It's insane. I don't know how people run a business. That's crazy all the stuff that she has to deal with, but it's something that she loves. So myself, I, of course I, I support her 100%, but mm -hmm. like if you are a spouse of someone who runs their own business, well, you're an unpaid employee. Yeah. So like, <laughs> you know, just this morning, what did I do? Well, almost every morning I pick up uh, produce from the wholesaler. I uh, then drop it off and it, it's not too far away. So that's fine. Uh, I'll run the register. I'll wash dishes. I'll, um, uh, you know, take out the trash, of yeah. course, sweep, whatever needs to be done. Mm -hmm. um, and it's hard, though, because, it, you know, I also have my own job to do. Thankfully, my job is flexible. But at the same time, like, well, I still need to do my work as well. So, like, sometimes my wife needs me and I can't help her. And she doesn't get mad. She understands that. But, like, it's hard. It, it, it is really, really hard. But it makes her happy. And. You know, so that makes me happy. If it makes her happy, then I'm happy. Yeah. Teamwork makes the dream work. I guess so. <laughs> yeah. Now, do you ask her, do you, does she give you feedback for your work? Do you, do you offer, hey, will you read this before I file it? No, you do that? no. Nah. She, she, she brags how she doesn't read my work because she <laughs> listens to me. She listens to me all the time. <laughs> now, she I does. mean, like, now let me ask you this because, you know, I, I, I think sometimes, as we know, like we get praised from our work, but the negative stuff always resonates with us most. And people always tend to kind of focus on like the negative responses, the kind of hysteria or maybe it's like negative stuff. Does she read any of that? And does it give her anxiety? Like, hey, Gustavo, like I don't I don't like the way people are reacting to this. Does she get worried about you? I mean, yes, of course. <laughs> she always makes the joke that when we bought our house, 
I was also on book tour and I had also outed white supremacists. So I left her alone. I'm going around the country. White supremacists are like uh, trying to issue death threats to me and she's all by herself at her home. So she does worry about some of the things that I write, um, you know, because I it, it's tough. It's tough. I mean, look, when I started uh, writing about the sheriff of Los Angeles, Alex Villanueva, like mm -hmm. I and, you know, he was a vengeful guy. So the first thing I did was like hey, when I'm out and about. You know, I used to have two cocktails. Now I'm only having one, if any at all. And I'm going to really just wash it down with a bunch of water because the last thing I need to do is being get pulled over and I'm over the limit, you know, because that's what some people would love to see me do. So mm. you know, Hector always says that with the LA Times comes a bigger target just because you're, you're now writing for a far bigger publication, a far bigger audience and all of that. And um, and, it, and it's true that hasn't made me change how I do my journalism mm -hmm. um, come, you know, come, you know, but we've lost friendships over my writings. Um, I've lost friends. Uh, we've lost friendships. I really have not lost friends per se, but I always tell people you bet, you know, you better do good because if you do bad, I'm going to write about it and I'm going to I'm not going to take no pleasure in it, but mm -hmm. I'm going to be extra happy or you know extra sad when i uh you know go after you but i'm still gonna go after you yeah you gotta like, do I, it. I, I, I mean i'm already though i'm a loner to be you know in general i because again i was a nerd i have like my friends that i've had i've had them since junior high but yeah they were my cousins and so i know i'm never gonna lose them and then over the years you pick up new friends like yourself like you know i know i'm never gonna lose you uh, <laughs> but we're always gonna have even though we're far away we're gonna have each other's back so yeah. but it's like slowly but surely and, you know and i actually have to write a newsletter i'm friendly to everyone but i'm friends to very few people because if you're going to be my friend like you know you're going to have to realize that i'm me and which mm -hmm. means that i could turn on you if you do something bad yeah and not yeah. everyone could take that what type of public figure do you do you fear the most when writing about is it is it is it politicians is it law enforcement is it white supremacists like i'm not afraid I'll never be afraid of any of them. They're all different in their own ways, but they're all the same. The, that if I'm writing about a white supremacist, law enforcement, or a politician, for the most part, they got in trouble. They got in trouble because of themselves. They're their own worst enemies because they're egomaniacs. Egomaniacs are scary people, yes, but I'm not scared of writing about them because my job is to write the truth. And mm -hmm. if I didn't want to write about the truth, then I would not be covering the people that I'm covering. I Again, I take no joy People think like, oh, you know, he wants to talk trash on this person or that person. No, I'd rather honestly just cover, you know, not feel good stories all the time. But I like to tell stories that inspire folks, stories that get people motivated to do something or tell us about who we are as Californians. Sadly, part of being a Californian is political corruption. And so those are, you know, those are stories that really reporters don't want to write. But I'm not going to shy away from them. If, you know, if I have a scoop, I'm going to follow it until I you know, until, un until the story is done, you know, let's just leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you so much for that. So I, I saw that you have, you have three books out. You have ask the ask a Mexican, which is a compilation of the columns. Now, did you have any issues with OC weekly when you put that book out? No, because we had cool bosses at the time. Mm, okay. So it's, <laughs> it's after you put it out, uh, you couldn't, you can't do anything or it's like you got that nope. book out just in time. No, 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 because that came out in 2007. We mm -hmm. didn't get our new owner 
until 2016, the Dirk owner. Mm-hmm. And so by then it was all it was all done. But no, I mean, I people oh, people still come up to me and say like, oh, I loved Ask a Mexican. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, I liked it too. But that I don't write that column anymore. That was I haven't then. written in five years. And yeah, that was then. This is now. Read my mm-hmm. column now. That, yeah. That's the column that I'm writing. Most definitely. And it's okay. better. And I love Ask a Mexican, but this column's better. <laughs> I still remember all those. I still remember those. I'm telling you, man, this is some classic stuff. And my, oh, yeah. my, my sense of humor still hasn't changed. So I will still go back over there. And even if Ask a Mexican now rubs people the wrong way, I'm like, you know what? I, hey, I just, does, yeah. you, see, you know, though, like, I because, I mean, this is now, it's been gone for five years. So it hasn't been in people's, like, I, I bet you people will rediscover ask a mm-hmm. mexican they will and put it in its proper context the proper context is that there's always and i and i always told people ask a mexican is really not anything new i'm continuing a long tradition of ethnic humor in american uh letters where you would have these usually columnists write about their community in a way that was very bracing but had a lot of in jokes for them and criticized white supremacy at large mm-hmm. i mean th- this was a staple of american humor and like do i consider myself a humorist no but it was you know what i brought into that column was that it was about mexicans mm-hmm. i didn't take myself seriously but yet very seriously and i did a lot of reporting for that column as well so i you know history it, like And Ask a Mexican always had critics. I mean, it would have been interesting to see Ask a Mexican continue in this age, like the Wokoso age. But the the Wokosos were always there to begin with. I always had people who did not like Ask a Mexican. When I read Ask a Mexican now, if if I had to critique it, I would say, like, yeah, maybe I had too many – uh, jokes about sex, like it was they were crude, (laughs) but you know, but yeah. But I, I stand by everything I wrote. Um, and people say like, oh, you know, you're mocking Central Americans. And I'm like, you missed the point of, of you know, mocking of the mocking specifically Guatemalans because I was highlighting the very real anti-Central American uh, sentiments mm-hmm. that exist among Mexicans. I don't feel them. I've never felt them. But I needed to make sure that the audience realized that, yes, it was true. I mean, what other columnist was willing to eviscerate their own community for their own racism? I don't see other folks doing it. So, again, history will absolve me on that. Topic. Yeah, you know, I always felt reading Ask a Mexican that the response is like you were always um, you were always defending uh, uh, the responses were always defiant. And whoever was asking maybe a, a kind of a the, the question was always kind of like trying to be demeaning. But the responses were always like. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I was just like, yeah, that's the response <laughs> I would give if I was that if I knew how to speak that quickly on this particular subject. But I was just like, I'm reading it and I'm behind the response like, fuck yeah, man. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. And laughing along at the same time. Um, Yeah. (laughs) In the entirety of Ask a Mexican, again, what grounds me is knowing 99.999% of people have no idea what Ask a Mexican is. That grounds me. So that's the perspective that you asked about earlier. But of the people who do reach out, who knows? Maybe most of the people who read Ask a Mexican hated it. But the people who reach out to me throughout its entire run, overwhelmingly positive. I now now I'm getting the people who say, "Hey, I'm a fan of yours, and I got into you because my dad used to read Ask a Mexican to me to be mm-hmm. to make me proud of my Mexican heritage." Yeah. And that's awesome. it's a celebration. Is it really awesome. is a celebration. It you is know, kind of again, a celebration. Like, <laughs> it, it's nice to hear that, but again, like I that was never my my intent in writing has always. 
I've never been to uplift people. Mm-hmm. It's always been comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, and mm-hmm. that's everyone. And if people want to extrapolate more meaning from everything that I write, then that's cool. That's cool. But if they don't, hey, again, you're part of the 99.999% of people who don't know me, so all I could do is write for myself at the end. Yeah. It, it reminded me of like, you know, like a Richard Pryor, watching Richard Pryor um – you know, his his uh, live performances and those type of jokes that, you know, before we started seeing a lot of like Chicano comics come up and before we started seeing like Paul Rodriguez and stuff like that, we look we watched uh, black comedians and the way they kind of like celebrated and poked fun of all the the things that they knew about growing up black in America. And so, oh, of yeah. course, they use the N word a lot. And that's th- something that we don't. But like, we're not going to we're not going to be calling ourselves beaners all the time and all that stuff. But however, if you grew up watching Richard Pryor and Red Fox and, you know, a lot of that, you know, doll, you know, Rudy Ray Moore and all that stuff. Yeah. Ask a Mexican was just like, oh, yeah, it's just an extension of that. You know, it, 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 it was a far more nerdy version and Mm -hmm. and i think that's what shocked people is like okay this guy's a total nerd but he's vulgar as hell (laughs) he is saying this this and that and not only that this is a nerd who fights Mm -hmm. i think that's what people get most surprised about me you know because you see me i'm not that tall i'm relatively skinny i you know i'm definitely not athletic but when i put myself on the page i'm like people are like who the hell is this guy like he no se no se deca at all yeah do do do, do people ever come up to you and want to debate you like out in public or you're just kind of like hey i'm here if anybody wants to talk to me and everybody just avoids <laughs> you like, i'm the great john l sullivan and i'll beat any son of a bitch in the house uh that, that that's what the first heavyweight champion uh you know irish guy from boston used to do he'd go into these pubs and say you know now i am the great john l sullivan and i'll beat any son of a bitch in the house um mm-hmm. And that would never happen. No, of course not. Like people, there was one. I, you see, I, I'm very much about the rules of engagement. Mm-hmm. In other words, like if you want to debate me, that's cool. There's a time and a place for that. But like, if that's not the time and the place, I'll shut you down fast. So I remember one time I was at some party, and the guy's like, "Oh, you're ask a Mexican, blah blah blah." I'm like, "Yeah, cool, whatever." And then we're just talking, and then he wants to talk about immigration. I'm like, "Dude, no." I barely know you. You're not paying me. Not that you have to pay me to do these things, but like, no, I'm not going to do it. He got all pissed off at me. He was like, oh, I thought you were cool. I'm like, I'm trying to hang out here right now. Yeah. Like, if you're my friend, yeah, that's a bay. I, I mean, there's at my um, my wife's store, uh, she has a, a regular, and I know him as well. And we get into, and he's more conservative than I am, but he's mm-hmm. not a Trumper. But we get into debates like for 45 minutes he'll get his breakfast and we'll just talk and talk and talk my wife calls it the great debates she's Mm -hmm. mocking us but like yeah i do that because like i get it that's that's just sort of what we've created now but um but for the most part if people go again if people go up to me they just say hey i'm a big fan Mm -hmm. i've been told by people i don't like you your work and i tell them thank you thank you for even knowing who i am and just you know at that point i'm very good at disarming people i'm very very good at that because Due to my profession, like you have to learn how to disarm situations and fast. Yeah, any response is better than no response. Exactly. <laughs> it sucks when no you put something out and nobody responds. That's that's oh, the fucking worst feeling. <laughs> it's heartbreaking. I tell people, you really want to insult me? Don't call me this, this, and that. Don't even know who I am. Or nowadays, like people say, like, oh yeah, you used to work for the Orange County Register. I'm like, no, it's OC Weekly. I just got, I you know, are like, oh that, huh? Why? Who are you? Like, oh, that's the, oh, no, are the best. No, 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 no. You know this. 
the best is when I get mistaken as that awesome cartoonist. <laughs> like, it not only is it racist because you're assuming there's only one Mexican who does all the media stuff, but it's also insulting because like I'm not Lalo Alcaraz. He's brilliant. He's incredible. Mm -hmm. I am not him. Like and to think I'm up to his standard, that's horrible. That that is a bit you know, and it happens all the time too. How have you guys done a lot of uh I know you guys have, but like how often do you guys show up at, to do something at the same event together? Like he's you both speak or you interview him or he interviews you. Yeah, that that, that hasn't happened in a while. We used to do it more often, like go, go speak to high school conferences. Mm -hmm. I think the last time actually was at the University of Notre Dame a couple of years ago. Wow, man. Yeah, that would have been 2000. This is before the pandemic, so it's 2019. Um, yeah, yeah, because it snowed and we got brought in. It was myself, Lalo, Adrian, Felix. They had like a symposium, and we and we each had our own talk, and then they brought us all together to talk. And that was really, really cool. Uh, no, Lalo's a, a great friend of mine. Like He always shows up mm -hmm. in Grita Guti. We're always texting each other, bouncing stuff off of each yeah. other but you know, Lalo Lalo's amazing Lalo's his own world I'm just a crazy ass columnist yeah you guys both have like a really interesting I will your careers love following both you guys I mean it's definitely it's it makes me proud like now these guys are out there they, they you know I love the fact I don't I don't see as like oh I can't wait to see who they piss off next but the thing about it is that you the responses that you get, like that's what you want. You want people to talk. There's going to be people who are going to be down with it. There's going to be people against it. But if people don't care, that's the fucking worst. You know, it's oh like, you know, you want people to be pissed off. Maybe, you know, you don't want people throwing insults and all that stuff because, you know, that that's the easy way out. But you want people to talk about it and love the fact that people are still very interested in you and they should because you really, I mean, you guys still have a lot of years ahead to, to, yeah, to start well, some more shit. Yeah, you know, and, you know, let me bring this because we'll, we'll kind of head in towards towards the end of this. Getting into, like, teaching and and the future of journalism. Are you still on campus anywhere? Oh, yeah. No, yeah. this semester I am a co-advisor okay. to uh, the Coast Report at Orange Coast College, my alma mater. Um, I didn't, sadly, I didn't have enough students sign up for the regular class that I teach, but I, I am going to teach it next semester. And then at Chapman University, my other alma mater, I teach, I'm teaching the Latinx history of Orange County, which hopefully I'll be able to teach every year now. Mm, okay, so let me ask you this. What are what are some of the, the teaching methods that you use in the messaging to students? Because it seems like journalism students today and journalism programs, communications programs, I mean, I don't even know what they're teaching them these days. It, it's probably something different than, than what I, when I was taught because, you know, print and everything was around, but now it's completely different. But what are the, some of the methods and the messaging that you use when teaching these students who might think about pursuing journalism or some form wow, of communications? Wow, Matt. You're actually treating me as a professor and as someone who might know, have some insights about the about being a professor and not just treating me like a Mexican. Kudos <laughs> to you, man. This is <laughs> real deal. You're, you're seeing me, man. You're seeing me. I am, brother. No, I, I know, I, and I know you do. I know you mm -hmm. do. Thank you that. Thank you for that. But no, <laughs> above all, I teach them the prime. It doesn't matter what format you're in. People want to see, hear read, consume, whatever you want to call it, a great story. If you have a crappy story, it'll catch up to you. Your job then is to figure out 
what makes a great story, then how do you tell that story? And I could teach them um, methods. I could teach them, um, you know, certain tricks. Like, you know, depending on the class, I, I, I love teaching. I teach narrative nonfiction. So that's where, you know, we just teach you how to do big, huge stories. But I love teaching intro to journalism because I would do a whole class like, let's do a class on bias and objectivity. Uh, let's do a class on how to interview people. Let's do a class on how to write a lead, you know, like, and so the micro thing, and that's, this is the one thing though, that I will say, I still teach written form. So the classes that I'm teaching is about writing journalism. It's not about audio journalism. That's different. It's not about multi-platform journalism. That's going to be different. So, you know, I do tell students that if you really do care about journalism, if you want a career in journalism, make sure to take classes and all these other things. But do not forget the primacy of the story and also that journalism is a hard occupation. And if you really want to advance, you have to be basically on call 24-7. Yes, you should take time for yourself, but the news does not sleep. And it is up to you to go find the news wherever it may be and not allow other people to beat you to it. Mm, yes, yes. If that yeah. makes me antiquated, well, so be it. I, I've, I've always been old. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think that's – I'm. I've always been curious about what goes on in the classrooms these days. Like I don't, uh, you know, I haven't, I haven't been asked to speak at uh, any of the, the, the writing classes. I did, I did a couple times when, I, when I was at the Bakersfield, California, and when we would, when they were, when everything was going really well, and they were social media was something new, and so I, I had kind of jumped into that. Yeah. I had been hired at the time when you know I had the mental capacity to like absorb everything and and show all the OG reporters like what it was all about. And little by little, the OG reporters just started to leave the business because they're like, I don't know, I don't want to. I can't keep up with this anymore. You know, I'm used to the way print is done and this internet thing. I don't want to have to produce as quickly. And so the next wave of reporters came in and I just happened to jump in. I had no plans to become a, a reporter and I already knew, I knew what my lane, my strengths were going to be. So I jumped into that. But everybody that I've spoken to today, um, I... I said, Hey, do you have any, like, what are you going to do after school? And, you know, oh, I don't think I'm going to, I don't think I'm going to continue in journalism. I'm like, well, why are you even going to school for it? <laughs> I just don't understand mm. what the mindset is. You know, what, I, I, what are you hearing from some of the students? I mean, are they just taking it because they have to take it as part of like a, a, a series of classes they have to take, or do they really, really want to get into the news? I mean, I can tell you that I've had students at Orange Coast College take my class as a uh, elective and to get and then get interested in to becoming a journalist and enrolling in journalism mm. programs and they've cited my names when they try to get a job somewhere and they've asked me for letters of recommendation i've given it to them um i i look i tell it always was to begin with there's obviously less jobs now at least in the traditional ways but again if you have a story to tell mm. there will be yeah an audience for it somewhere. There'll be a, 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 a platform for you to be able to want to tell those stories. Like it is all there, but it is a lot of work and you have to go out there and do all of that work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is an audience out there. Okay, so let's move into the present as we uh, to wrap this up. What do you have going on? What are some of the projects you have in the pipeline? Well, the big story that I'm doing now is... Um, it's a series, and I don't like doing projects. I, I don't like to be intentional about things, mm -hmm. but this one I announced recently. I'm, I'm doing a series on Latino political power in Los Angeles, 
focusing on four case studies, uh, all you know, all different areas of Los Angeles proper. So the east side, South LA, the San Fernando Valley, and then what's called Sela, Southeast LA, a collection of cities like uh, este would be Southgate, Bell, Bell Gardens, Maywood, all of that. I'm gonna do that before the end of the year, but then I want to expand that to examine Latino political power across Los An- across California, because you know I've I, you know I've covered some of those dynamics in the Valley, especially in Kern, you know, and Wasco to be very very specific. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you know, uh, politics in Kern County for Latinos is going to be way different than politics, say, in San Bernardino County, which are going to be different from Orange County. Like, I'm just interested at how Latino political power plays out. And and more importantly, what are the lessons? Like, the politicos, they all know each other, you know, especially on the state uh, of the state legislature level. They know each other for the most part. But I think the masses at large, they really don't know. And they all they do is see from afar, like, oh, you know, in, in, in the east side, in Boyle Heights, they're, like, they're always fighting with each other. It's crazy. In South LA, you know, historically black, but now majority Latino, like there's no Latino representatives. What's up with that? In Sela, they, they, those cities there made news for a good decade for all the huge corruption scandals that were going on there. Now you have a new generation of young politicians who are trying to clean it up. So like people have these, people know what's going on from afar, but they don't really know the stories from within. And that's what I want to do. And then I'm just curious, like, you know, I, I know up in Kern, like, okay, there's a Latino council member or rather a Latino supervisor, but what's, you know, what's their story? Like, why isn't there more Latinos on the board of supervisors? Like, you know, Delano is going to be different from say Arvin and they're going to be different from for sure. Like, mm-hmm. you know, what's up in Fresno and all of that. And I just don't think, you know, uh, the public at large knows those stories. And I'm just curious. And again, for me, this is not oh, like a oh, representation of Latinos per se, for me, it's like this is the political development of the group that's now the plurality in California. No one has really told the bigger story or the historical story overall. I see an opportunity. If, and if I'm not going to do it, I don't want someone to beat me to it. You know, any direction you need over in our area, please, by all <laughs> means, reach out because there's a lot. Uh, like I've told you this, uh, my father being the first uh, Mexican American, well, Mexican councilman here in McFarland, where I grew up, and being yeah. one of the two uh, Latino politicians right in our area, you know, like I didn't know what he was. I used to say, looking back at it now, and I was like, what were you thinking at the time? You know, you had a very thick accent, um, but for some reason, you know, he just thought, hey, I'm I'm surrounded by all these white guys. <laughs> and I'm the Mexican guy in there. And, you know, he was the foreman at the at the winery and somehow we got in there. But yeah, I think it's that's a that's an excellent project. I mean an excellent uh endeavor for you to to get into and to and to dig into. Now what about movies? Any scripts? Uh, uh, you no, you I, de- I, hey, listen, I, I, you had the brush, you had the brush with Hollywood and T V, but are you ever thinking about going back into that? No. Uh, Hollywood is a disgusting industry in many, many ways. I have no intent of going back look never say never of course if there was a project offered to me um i'm not going to say no they always say take a meeting in fact i'm going to take a meeting later this afternoon we'll Mm -hmm. see how that goes but i have no illusions of ever going back into hollywood those you know i have friends in the industry those who make it into the industry that's great and i applaud them they have to tell our stories uh i get it not everyone's into journalism that's fine but like for me it it ain't for me let's Mm -hmm. you know let's just say that well what about calling up your cousin jessica (laughs) (laughs) you know the funny thing is 
I think it's her first cousin or second aunt, mm-hmm. but someone who's related closer to her. In other words, someone who uh, saw her grow up before she became Jessica Alba. She's a huge, huge, huge fan of mine. Like, I'm sure I could, like, pass a message to her and, and to Jessica, and, she, and my fan would pass it along. And she's a professor now at, in Pueblo, Pueblo, Colorado. Mm-hmm. But I'm not that type of person, you know. I'm not that type of person at all. Oh, man, that would be great, though. She's probably just waiting. I wish she would just call. I hope, you know, yeah. <laughs> she could probably, well, she probably, she's, she's probably doing pretty well right now. Maybe she, oh, she was, yeah. she was, she, she was big the, during the, during the, during the good, when you could actually make money in Hollywood. Now she's like, I'm, you don't even see her on the picket line. She's like, you know what? I've, I've kind of had enough no, of that. because she's, she's now, a, she's now a mogul with her, um, what's it called? Not beyond, um. Her well, whatever her wellness company is, she, oh, she's made a right. lot of money off of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah she's oh, doing she, all that. Well, but you know, she's re- great. Like, oh yeah, totally. No, no, no. She's doing really, really good. Now, let me ask you this: like, so the Hollywood writer strike and the way that all that stuff—I mean, the the Screen, screen Actors Guild and all that stuff's been going down—and I think the one thing that I would see from the outside, just following all the news, is that the ones who got screwed the most were the ones who were at the time, not even working that much to begin with, which is the Latino actors. And, you know, uh, right behind the black actors, I think the the black actors have, have, they've already broken into Hollywood really, really, and they're solid, but there will always be some form of struggle to try to get their stories told and to see more black actors on, in, on the big screen. But I mean, Latino actors, I mean, we're way at the bottom and I don't know if we're ever going to be able to get up there, but like when the, when the strike's going on, I mean, I could just imagine what the Latino actors were really struggling to begin with. You know, they're, they're sitting back there. They're on the picket lines waiting. Come on, you guys, just figure this shit out because we want to get back to work. We're barely working as it is. But, you know, what are, some, what are your thoughts on all that? The, uh, all, all actors were struggling. All of them. I mean, I, like, I, I would not know the racial breakdown of who was getting less work than others. I mean, there's not that many Latino actors to begin with in comparison to Hollywood. Chris Rock, who, by the way, is my favorite comedian of all time he wrote an, a legendary essay for the hollywood reporter about hollywood and and in it he you know he basically said uh, hollywood was like a slave society and that latinos were basically thought of as slaves as the help and he had that line like you're in la you have to try to not hire you know to tr- not hire mexicans because oh, yeah. they're all around mm-hmm. and this is seven years ago i think yeah oh and uh, he did the thing about they cleaning the houses in beverly hills yeah, and yep, yeah i remember that great story th- th- this was seven years ago, and um, here we are. Things have marginally improved, but like, no, the, the strike was a huge thing. The great thing with both SAG-AFTRA and WGA strike was that there was solidarity for everyone. It wasn't like the established people saying, we're going to screw over the unestablished people. Far from it. They want more people, and like, they want more people to have access to what they're able to have and not mortgage the future for those people, you know? So the, the SAG-AFTRA. The SAG after strike continues. The WGA strike, of course, was settled, and people were happy with that. Mm-hmm. So we'll we'll see what happens. I mean, but it, I always say the the big issue with Hollywood is always going to be that we need Latino executives. What good is what good is it if you have a whole bunch of actors and even writers if the people who are making the money decisions are not Latino and like don't understand what our stories are? Yeah. I mean, this is why it is important to. You, and, and that said, it's not just representation. I mean, you and I talked about the Flaming Hot movie, and we both got in trouble for it. But <laughs> I stand by, 
I stand by my words. I'm not going to support something that's crap. On the other hand, you should support the good. Like this fool by Chris Estrada, who was my guest judge yeah. for my KCRW Tortilla Tournament. Brilliant, funny, hilarious show. Chris is great. Mm -hmm. Michael Imperioli is always awesome. And more importantly, it tells people about a side of Los Angeles, Latinos in South LA that had never really gotten any representation, let alone know, is known outside of, even in Los Angeles, a lot of people don't know that South LA is now, has been majority Latino for a long time. So support those great projects. Don't support crap projects, support the great projects. Yeah, that was a great score. Like, how did that happen? Did he, did he call you or did you contact him? No. I just hit him up. I'm like, hey, man, do you want to be a guest judge? He's like, oh, I've never done it before. Uh, okay, sure. And that was it. <laughs> That's great. He, I love mean, that it, show. It helped, it helped that he was a fan of mine to mm -hmm. begin with, uh, which is very cool. The, the, the other big name was a fan of mine, Shea Serrano. Um, I, I hope to ask him in a couple of years, but like he's also a big fan of mine. I mean, he said it out loud, like, oh, you know, Ask a Mexican was always big for me, and I just love what Gustavo does, which is crazy because he's huge. Um, but no, I just asked Chris, and Chris uh, was everything he looked, everything I thought he would be, and then some. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah, well, congratulations on that, man. And I'm, I'm glad you're you're still continuing that. Like, I, I posted up that picture. It was actually my wife still had it on her phone. She remember this? And I was like, Wow. <laughs> wow. That was a good time. Like the, the whole Taco Landia thing. And then it just like, Oh yeah, that's Bill Esparza. Yeah. 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 No. And then, you know, you, you came in to kind of try to take it to another level. And then of course, LA weekly, you know, <laughs> no, but no, it was all Bill. My, my job, yeah. you, people call me in. I'm like, I'm like uh Winston Wolf in Pulp Fiction. They yeah. call me in. To, yeah. they, they call me in to make sense of chaos. Mm -hmm. And so Bill, he invited me one year as a judge. Just I was a judge. Mm -hmm. I'm like, all right, cool. This is awesome. And then I could tell, like, the person in charge of the judges was not doing the job. So then he's like, all right, Gustavo, you're now in charge of the judges. And I regulated that stuff. Sadly, the last Tacolandia was 2017. Mm -hmm. And it was the best one ever. It was there in Olvera Street. It was absolutely magnificent. And he, he still does festivals. He had one in Portland, uh, but you know he's not gonna fly me out there. there. There's no reason to. He'll he'll have other people, and it's smaller than what Tacolandia was. But no, Bill Bill is absolutely amazing. Yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. I think the last time I saw Bill Esparza, I ran into him at the um, the it was the L.A. Times. It was the thing at Paramount Paramount Studios. Oh, sure, football. Yeah, football, yeah, I went to one of those. I think it, I think it was right after Jonathan Gold died. Okay. It was right after that, and I ran into him in there, and yeah, that was that was a really nice experience. It was in the evening. We had a really good time, but uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it was like, you know, then the pandemic comes in and then just kind of erases so many things. Like, a lot of people, like, what's Taco Landia? I'm like, because there's so many taco festivals now. It's like, you know, they just forget about, like, all the original ones that kind of helped to spark that whole series of events. Okay, last question. What do you envision the 2024 election season to be like? Chaos, absolute chaos. Look, it's democracy. Mm -hmm. Nothing's like it's not going to be the downfall of the United States. It's not going to be any of that. I mean, I really don't know. Now, you, now you see what's ha happening in Israel and Palestine. Yeah. That uh, you know, I see Trump praising you know co Trump calling Hezbollah a terrorist organization very smart. That's not really going to sit well with American Jews um, or Jews anywhere or any good people anywhere in the world. Uh, Trump has a cult. That cult, you know, the problem with cults is that they're hard to deprogram and they will go down fighting. 
Uh, there's also younger Democrats who have an issue with Joe Biden. I've always been a fan of Joe Biden. I continue to be a fan of Joe Biden. I do wish he would have been a one-term president. I'm not a fan of Kamala Harris. Uh, so I, I, you know, I want him to run again. I don't, you know, and the Democratic Party, to its credit, they're not running. You know, no serious Democrat is planning to run against uh, Joe. And we'll see. I, I still think. I mean, it all depends, though. It's all about the economy here in California. You know, obviously, you folks are different in Kern down here in Southern California, even Orange County. Biden's going to win against uh, Trump because people just really loathe Trump. I mean, we'll see who Trump's going to get as his vice president. I think. I mean, it's only going to be a member of the cult. There's no way he's going to get someone moderate. I mean, Pence was not a moderate at all, but at least he would get a certain uh, evangelical vote at the time when people thought like, oh, you know, Trump was uh, he's like Solomon or he's David. He's a he's an imperfect king that we need right now. No, now he's just a, a lunatic. Uh, we'll see who decides to run alongside with him. And then obviously in California, um, the interesting race is going to be for the U.S. Senator seat uh, that is currently, uh, you know, the one that Dianne Feinstein used to have until she passed away. Um, it'll it'll remain to be seen if the person that Gavin Newsom appointed is going to continue to run. Uh, that's going to be interesting. Um, you know, Steve Garvey's not going to win, not in a million years. Um, <laughs> I, I heard about that. <laughs> you know, and then in 2026, it's that's going to be the race for governor. Like, who is going to – like, is a Latino going to run for governor right now? Well, yes, you do have one, Tony Thurman. He's half Panamanian. He's a uh, secretary of education. But, you know, will Tony be able to be Elena, the, our, our lieutenant governor, Kulanakis or whatever her last name is? I can't remember right now. Um We'll see. We'll see. I mean, I know I'm going to be covering it one way or another. Oh, yeah. It's going to be wild. Well, that's the thing. It seems when I ask people that question, people like in the news and I ask them, so what do you think about 2024? And they, oh, yeah, that's right. It's coming up. We're almost there. Yeah. It's going to be really crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. And then, then it makes them think. And hey, well, what, what about the Olympics? I mean, you got the Olympics coming up in 2028 in L.A. Like, how do you see that whole thing kind of falling apart oh, or going well? No. I mean, they're gentrifying people. They're adding all this stuff. It's just, it's going to be like the Olympics were in 84. Yeah. They're just going to clear out all the homeless encampments and everything's, there's going to be no traffic and everything's going to be clean. Look, I love the Olympics. I know how, I know how corrupt they are. Uh, don't completely corrupt, but I'm, you know, I don't hold it against the athletes. I'm, I'm ready. I mean, I'm not going to go to any of the events because again, I don't cover sports, but I'm mm -hmm. sure I'll do stories surrounding it. But like, you just have to, you can't uh, romanticize what these, Things are. It's like you can't romanticize the Dodgers. Like mm -hmm. you know, they just want your money. At the end, they just want your money. They're uh, they're otherwise not going to be there for you. And you ex you pull out of them whatever meaning you have, but they usually don't want it. So same thing with the Olympics. Like it'll be cool, but I'm not going to romanticize anything. Yeah. Wow. Hey, brother. Well, thank you so much for for uh, spending this much time with me. Um, I was like, I don't think he's. I don't think we're ever going to be able to do this interview because he's just too busy, and I don't want to bother him. But I really I, I, appreciate I, I, it. Man. I already have three Slack messages and five phone calls that I have to do, but I gave my commitment to do this, and so I'm doing it. it you are a man thank of you honor. Questions. You are a man of honor. Yeah, a journalist, an author, a professor, multimedia uh, show host, part-time rabble roser. No, media gadfly, maybe. But you are also cousin of Jessica Alba. Third time, three times removed, right? Yep. That's what's on your Wikipedia page. By the way, you need to add you. You need to go there and do some updates because it kind of ends there. 
I really don't care. <laughs> well, I went. I've gone in and I fixed a, a couple people that I've interviewed. I've updated their their Wikipedia pages because somebody's gone in and put a completely different URL for their uh, official website. Like Ilabamba, I fixed her. I fixed her Wikipedia page, and uh, maybe I'll just go in there and I'll add your uh, your website oh, that, to it. That, that would be kind. Yeah, because there's nothing there. It's like, well, Gustavo's website isn't even on here. It just says journalist and then uh, third cousin to uh, Jessica Alp. <laughs> that, that, that's all I'm known for. That's fine. <laughs> if that's all I'm known for, it's a good life. Yeah. All right, brother. Well, thank you so much. Have a good week. I'll talk to you soon. Same to you, man. Thank you again. Peace. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Real Talk Podcast. If you'd like to catch Real Talk on Terrestrial Radio, you can catch the live broadcast every Friday from 10 a.m. to noon on Forge 103.9 FM in the Kern County area. You can also stream the show and podcast from Forge1039.com. And if that's not convenient enough, you can also follow and subscribe from wherever you get your podcasts. Technology is amazing. Thanks again.